0: Log Told Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth. This is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Cancola.
1: That's right. That's me,
0: Melissa Cancola. Thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Today I got for you Vodi Rotham and Darcy Sproul and more. And here we get started with uh, this is called doubting God's promises with Dr. Vodi Welton.
2: If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Exodus chapter fourteen. Exodus chapter fourteen, as we now approach the Red Sea, and arguably the most renowned miracle in the Bible, aside from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are very few things that are known by more people, recognized by more people, than the parting of the Red Sea. This is probably due in large part to Cecil B. DeMille's treatment in the Ten Commandments and the fact that. Uh, Early on in movie-making history, people got to have a visual of this event unlike anything that they had experienced before in regard to biblical miracles being accomplished. But this ranks up there with, with Noah's flood in terms of the sheer spectacular nature of what happened but many Christians find the miracle accounts in the Bible inaccessible, if not unrealistic. The thinking goes something like this. We don't experience these types of miracles in our own lives, therefore we can't relate. I, I don't see 40 days and 40 nights of global flood in my life, so I, I, I can't really relate. I, I, don't, I don't see um, fire and brimstone coming down as in Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, I, I can't relate. I don't, I don't see seas parting, and therefore I can't really relate. So how can I apply something like this to my own experience? Several things are important to remember here. First, not even the people in the Bible experienced miracles regularly. In fact, most of the people you read about in the Bible didn't experience miracles in their lives. Secondly, the miracles in the Bible were spread out over thousands of years, which is why most of the people in biblical times never experienced miracles. And three, the miracles in the Bible are about more than just their immediate impact. They each teach us something about God. These miracles that we see in the Scriptures purposeful, it happened for a reason, not just to overcome whatever the immediate obstacle was, but in order to communicate something more significant and lasting than that. Example, how many of us can relate to this story? Imagine someone telling this story and ask yourself if that someone could possibly be you. I became a Christian many years ago, and God delivered me from a lifestyle of sin and from a number of particular sins. However, as I walked away from my sin, it would sometimes come back. It was as though my sin didn't want me to go. At times, I even thought it had me felt like my situation was hopeless, like I wasn't really delivered at all. I would even ask myself if it was really worth it. If I'm honest, I sometimes ask myself if God was really there, if he was really enough, or if I was really saved. As again and again and again, the sin that I believed that I had overcome would reach out to grab me once again, would come to get me once again. And as it came for me, I found myself at times, if I'm really honest, even appreciating the fact that my sin was once more coming me. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Folks, if you've been saved longer than a month, that absolutely sounds familiar to you. Uh, By the way, that's not an individual's story. That's Israel's story in Exodus chapter 14, because that's precisely what's happening here. They've been delivered. And remember, the Exodus becomes sort of the symbol of deliverance of God's people from sin. And as they've been delivered and they find themselves walking away, all of a sudden that which held them captive determines to come after them again. And as they look up to see that which held them captive, determines to come and kick them away again, they grumble, they murmur question God and question their deliverance and even resign themselves to just lay down and die. This is a microcosm of the Christian experience at various times. This is a microcosm of our continued struggle with sin. This is a microcosm of the battle that we fight on a regular and ongoing basis. This is a microcosm of what God is doing as he delivers each and every one of us from our sin and to glory. Salvation has been achieved, and it is being achieved, and it is going to be achieved. Your salvation, past tense, you, you are justified. You have been declared Righteous your salvation present tense, you are being sanctified. You are progressively being delivered from sin, and that sin does not want to let you go, and you do not want to let your sin go, which is why we anxiously anticipate that time when we will ultimately and completely be delivered from our sin in glorification. When we are finally there, and it is finally done, and we are no longer subject to these temptations anymore. Is anybody looking forward to that? Amen. But in the meantime, there are those days where we look up, and here come the Egyptians, and we're not all that certain that we don't want them to get us because we're tired Because the struggle is hard, because we remember certain things that brought us comfort, and deep down in those places that we don 't talk about in Sunday school, we want that comfort sometimes, we want that pleasure sometimes we want that familiarity sometimes it 's ironic, but you ever wonder I, I can remember you know being in college, and I remember having to assist certain friends of mine on certain nights when they partook of certain things in excess. And certainly, you know, they're bowing before the porcelain god, as we would put it. And they're, they're as sick as they can be, always saying the same thing. I've heard you this again. And you sit there and you go, that's funny, but I heard you say this just a couple of weeks ago. So it's not just that sometimes we yearn for pleasure, but sometimes in a very sick way, we yearn for the misery as well. You know, Listen to some people as they talk about their sin and what they smile at and laugh at is the misery that it caused as though even the misery of it brings them comfort. Oh, beloved, don't you think for a moment that Exodus chapter 14 doesn't apply to you. It absolutely does. But as it applies to you, here's how I want you to understand the application. I want you to understand that it gives you a bird's-eye view of what's happening in this process as God is delivering you. Because when we're experiencing it, we're not thinking about this perspective. When we're experiencing it, all we know is that we are between a rock and a wet place, and the Egyptians are bearing down on us. And there appears to be nowhere left to go. That's all we see. That's all Israel could see. All Israel could see was where they were. All Israel could see was that there was no way out. All Israel could see was that it was not possible for them to deliver themselves or for anyone else, for that matter, to deliver them. All they knew was these people who were obviously upset with them, who never wanted to let them go in the first place, were finally coming to reclaim what was theirs, and there was nothing they could do about it. If they could see this From God's perspective It would look quite different And there was one Who could Moses stood there And did not have the same experience That every other Israelite had Because Moses Had been let in On the divine perspective Look at the first four verses at first, we see that what was happening was part of a sovereign decree. Verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Bihairoth, between Migdal and the sea, in the front of baal You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh say of the people of israel they are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in and i will harden pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and i will get glory over pharaoh and all his hosts and the egyptians shall know that i am the lord and they did so this is part of a sovereign decree again you're standing there and all you see is the egyptians are coming You don't understand it from God's perspective. Here's the way we experience the world. When something like this happens and it doesn't go according to plan, and it looks like things are about to take a turn for the worst, your automatic assumption at that moment is, God let this one slip by. You can't say amen. You ought to say ouch. That's your automatic assumption. God didn't see this one coming. God wasn't prepared for this. God wasn't powerful enough to stop this, or he just doesn't like me anymore. This is the way we interpret reality like this in the moment, when you see it coming and it looks like this terrible thing is about to befall you. However, what Moses knew that the rest of Israel didn't was that this was part of a sovereign decree, that this was not happening by accident. But like everything else in the world, it happened because of God's sovereign decree. Listen to the words that he uses here. The definitive nature of God's statements. You shall encamp. Pharaoh will say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Those are definitive statements. In other words, God does not come to Moses and say, Moses, don't panic, but I just noticed that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are coming. I'm going to try to work something out. You just told that. That is not the way God says this. God says to Moses beforehand, this is what's going to happen, and here's why it's going to happen, and here's how it's going to happen. He's even specific as to where? The specific nature of his state. In front of Pai Hairos, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal You shall encamp facing it. This is amazing. and I've had the privilege of, on a number of occasions of standing in different places in Israel where you're able to say X marks the spot. And the reason that there are so many places like that, In the land of Israel, where you can say X marks the spot, it's because of things like this. Between here and here, facing that way. And there are a number of those places where you can walk there and you can say, here it is, right here. Because you're between this point and that point, and you're facing that way. X marks the spot. Here's where it happened. Bible is clear like that because God is clear like that. What are the implications of this? Folks, the God who delivers us is in control of every detail. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The God who delivers us is in control of every detail. Secondly, there's nothing that Satan can do to thwart his plan. That's the other thing that we need to keep in mind. God is in control of every detail. There's nothing Satan can do to thwart his plan. By the way, it's hard when the Egyptians are bearing down on you and you're between, again, the Egyptians and the sea with nowhere to run. It's hard to remember these things, which is why you need to remember them now. Amen? We need to rehearse them over and over and over again so that when the Egyptians bear down, the answer is already clear. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You need to know that, saints. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. Satan cannot thwart the decrees of God. Satan cannot thwart the plans of God. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps. Whatever God pleases, he does. God doesn't do anything because he's being forced to. Whatever God pleases, he does. God doesn't do anything because he's trying to make up for his mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. Whatever he pleases, he does. Ecclesiastes 8.3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, don't oppose God because you can't win. I remember an old saying, and sometimes we sort of say it in jest around the house, your arms are too short to box with God. Amen? That's just good, isn't it? You're going to remember that. and You're going to say it at home, I promise. Your arms are too short to box with God. You can't. You can't. It's not possible for God to be defeated. It's not possible for his plans to be thwarted. Thirdly, remember this. There's nothing that can separate us from God's saving love. Nothing. Nothing. The Egyptians Needed to know this, or the, the, the Israelites needed to know this. You need to know this. You need to know this, because there are days when you doubt this, just like they did, Romans 8, 35 to 39. It's so familiar to us, but I frankly don't care. I'm reading it anyway, because I need it. I always need it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or disease or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the Egyptians or Pharaoh or his chariots or his horses or the list could go on and on and on. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing. In other words, what that means is God didn't bring Israel out of Egypt hoping he could save them. He brought Israel out of Egypt knowing that he would save them. God didn't bring you out of your situation hoping that he could save you. He brought you out of it knowing that he would save you. For all of those who have put their faith in God and in his work through the person of Jesus Christ. Know this, God is not hoping that he can save you on that day. God knows that he will save you on that day. This is our God. This is the God in whom we trust. This is the God to whom we have given ourselves, and we can know that he is able to guard that which we have entrusted with him against that sovereign decree. What does this mean? What if we don't cooperate with his sovereign decree? What if the evil one doesn't cooperate with his sovereign decree? Did you hear what I just told you? Why are you asking me that if I just told you that he does whatever he pleases? Why would you ask me that question? Providential response, though, needs to be understood. There's a difference between sovereignty and providence, between his decree and his providence. His decree, that's his sovereign decree, that's his authority by which. He decrees everything, whatsoever comes to pass. His providence is the means by which he works those things out. Look at verses 5 through 9. Before we look at that, let me me define this for you a little bit more. Let me define it first from our confession. 1689, the chapter on providence defines it this way. God, the good creator of all things, In his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy." John Gill, famous Baptist theologian, puts it this way. Providence, by which all the creatures God has made are preserved, governed, guided, and directed. The word itself is never used of the divine being uh, syllabically or in so many syllables in Scripture. Yet the thing itself, or what is meant by it, is fully declared and clearly expressed as that God upholds all things by his power, governs the world by his wisdom, looks down upon the earth, takes notice and care of all his creatures in it, and makes provision for them, and guides and directs them to answer the ends for which they were made, which is the sum and substance of providence. I think Wayne Grudem puts it even more plainly. You may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he wants, all created things, not just those that are in submission to him, but every created thing. God's providence doesn't just cover Christians. God's providence covers Christians, non-Christians alike, Every created thing is governed by God's providence so that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. That's why things stay what they are. That's God's providence. God's providence. By the way, that's how we can do science. We can study birds because birds won't turn into something else. Okay, what the evolutionists have told you. You can study primates. Primates don't turn into something else. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. So he keeps things being what they are and doing what they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purpose. Now, with that in mind, look first with the Egyptians and how they respond in verses 5 through 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servant was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. And while the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea at Piharoth in front of baal zaphon so what what happened did pharaoh go into a trance and did god all of a sudden make pharaoh the enemy of the israelites no he didn't no he didn't he continued to be who he was this is absolutely in keeping with who pharaoh has always been god didn't have to make him be like this but in the providence of god This Pharaoh, what Pharaoh, when these events took place, so that he, being who he was, would respond in this exact way, because that is what God decreed in order to maximize his glory in these events. This is important for a number of reasons. First of which is this. Oftentimes we believe that if people will just have the right kind of experience, that that's what they need to bring them to God. If they just, if they just experienced a tragedy, if they just experience if, if something would just happen, if God would just do ABC or XYZ, then this person would change and they would come to God. And sometimes tragedy will strike and you'll see an amendment of behavior. I've, I've talked frequently about the post-9-11 Quote, unquote, revival 9-11 took place And after that, in the fall of Rest of the fall of 2001 um, Church attendance bumped up significantly In the United States Not only did church attendance bump up significantly But also elected officials were quoting scripture And talking about God People were getting away with things That they never got away with before uh, that, that Christmas You know, the the ACLU and the Citizens United for the Separation of Church and State weren't nearly as active in saying, you can't do that. And there are displays all over the place, and there are a lot of people who refer to this post-9-11 revival because there was an amendment of people's behavior. People spoke to one another with greater kindness on the streets. There was more patriotism than we'd ever experienced before. It was an amazing thing for a few months, and then everything went right back to the way it was. Church attendance went right back down to where it was before. People's antagonism toward God resumed their normal levels. This is what happened with Pharaoh. All these plagues come, one after the other after the other, and they break down. But every time his heart is hardened again. Then finally the plague of plagues comes. The death of the firstborn. And it breaks him. But it doesn't change his heart. He's still the same man. And he lets Israel go. And eventually, when his grief turns back to rage, he girds himself up and gets his army together and he says, what was I thinking? Let's go kill them all. See, don't confuse the amendment of an individual's behavior with an actual change of heart. Don't confuse the individual who gets tired fighting against God with the individual who's actually been born again and now loves God. Pharaoh was tired, he was weary, and he was defeated, but he was not changed. I wonder if there are Pharaohs among us. I wonder if there are individuals even here, under the sound of my voice, and there are things in your life and circumstances in your life that turned you toward God. And and these circumstances that turned you toward God are no longer present in your life or active in your life. And yet, since you turned toward God, it just seemed to you that the right thing to do was to continue in this vein. But there has been no change of heart. You are still the same individual. You are still as outside of the camp as you ever were. Yet, you have learned how to be comfortable in this circumstance and in this setting. You've not been born again. You've not been transformed. You've not been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You have merely learned to amend your life by keeping a few rules so you appear outwardly to be holy. And yet, on the inside, you still rage Against God. But you have no idea what to do with it. The answer is repent. The answer is acknowledge your sin. The answer is to flee to Christ. The answer is to run to the cross. And see your sin nailed there. There's also the providential response of Israel. Notice that Israel is still who they were. You see that in verses 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Notice the statements here. The people feared greatly. The people cried out to God. People expected to die. This is Israel. And this is some of you. And this is sometimes me. Something happens and all of a sudden we lose our minds. Something happens and all of a sudden, even if just for a brief moment, we believe and hold on to this idea. That God saved me just so he could bring me to this point and embarrass me. Or God saved me just so that he could get my hopes up and disappoint me because he doesn't really like me. God saves me, but now he's forgotten about me. God saves me, but he doesn't love me as much as he loves other people because look at how easy it is for them and how hard it is for me. The problem is twofold. Number one, you've forgotten your deliverance. Think about, I mean, think about what has happened coming up to this point. Think about all that God has done in order to identify Israel as his own and in order to deliver Israel after hundreds of years out of Egypt. Think about everything that God has done. And now there are some hoof beats. Some horses on the way. And all of a sudden, we believe that the God who controls the Nile and the locusts and the flies and the sun and the stars and the death angel has suddenly run out of power. Ah, but not this. I know that he can do that, but not this. I know that he can deal with those things, but not this. I know he can deal with everybody else's problems, but not mine. I know that there are other Christians who can find comfort, but there's never been a Christian in the history of the world who's been hurt as much as I'm hurting right now, and there's no way that God has enough comfort to help me. No one's ever blown it as bad as I just blew it. And the blood of Jesus may cover other sins of people throughout the history of the known world, but there's never been anyone who blew it like I blew it, and I'm sure that God didn't have this sin in mind when Jesus went to the cross. This is us. You let a few Egyptians show up, and all of a sudden, our faith is gone. You can't say amen. You ought to say ouch. This is us, folks. That heartache comes. That disappointment comes. That failure comes. That sin raises its ugly head again. And all of a sudden, all we can see is the Egyptians. And we do not see the God who has dealt with them again and again and again. Here's what we need to remember. And here's where we get off track. Folks, God did not save Israel because of their great faith. And if you ever wondered about that, here's your answer right here. If there was ever any question, this settles it right here. God did not save these people because of their great faith not these individuals, oh, no, uh-uh. Here they come. Oh, oh, you brought us out here? We couldn't die over there. We had to come down over here, right? We could have just stayed. We could have just stayed slaves in Egypt. Wait a minute. You're the same people who were crying out to God, begging him to get you out of Egypt, and now a few horses come close. And you're saying, yeah, we should have just stayed there and died. He did not save them because of their great faith. Amen? Secondly, he didn't save them because of their holiness. This is not a holy people. Not by themselves. He didn't save them because they're holy. He saved them and made them holy. Amen? God's actions were not dependent upon Israel at all. God did this for his own sake. And for his own glory And one of the reasons that he chose Israel Was because they're not Egypt In other words If God in his sovereignty Settles his love On the most powerful nation in the world People see the success of that nation And they say it's because of horses and chariots But if God sets his love upon a slave people who have no power and exist in small numbers and they become the most significant people in the world, the only answer is God's on their side. That's the answer. But why is this important in light of God's providence in your life in these difficult circumstances? Here's why it's important. Because if God saved me for His own glory and not because of my faith, not because of my holiness, not because of my goodness, not because of my intellect, then when difficulty comes my way, it's God's problem. Amen. The Egyptians are coming. We got a problem. Uh-uh, God's got a problem. Because God's the one who delivered us from them. So God's the one who's got to deal with them. And he will. He will. He will. But you know when I believe he won't? And I believe he won't is when I believe that my deliverance and my salvation are contingent upon me being worthy of it. And so now all of a sudden I hear the sound of chariots coming, and I say, yep, oh, I didn't have as much faith as I needed to. Now he's going to let the chariots get me. Yep. I only kept nine of the things on my holiness list instead of ten. Now he's going to let the Egyptians kill me. You didn't save yourself. You can't keep yourself. God is the one who keeps his people. God was the one keeping Israel. There's no way in the world for them to defeat the Egyptians. And that's the whole point. Finally, there is the prophetic declaration. And this is crucial. Verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, again, remember, He's got a little insight on this. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. That's a, that's a sermon right there in itself, is it not? There's your three points. You want to preach something. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Why? The Egyptians you see today shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Fear not. Stand firm. Watch God. Shut up. There he is right there. There it is, is right there believe he brought us out here we're gonna die we're gonna die over there now we're gonna die over here i just not want to listen to you i didn't just say i didn't just fear not watch god stand firm please shut up what this is how we know god is active Because he has his prophet tell us that he's acting. And this is how we know why God has acted. Because he has his prophet tell us that he acted. See, folks, if God just acted, but there was no prophet to tell us, he just acted, but he never gave us his word to explain, then we'd be like the rest of the world. Every culture has a religious explanation for the way the world works. Every culture. That's why there have been people throughout history who have thrown virgins into volcanoes, beheaded their enemies and tossed their heads down the stairs of their wonderful religious monuments. This is why people have eaten the hearts of their adversaries. This is why people have done rain dances. This is why people have done a whole host of other things, Because you look at the world, you see what happens, and without the word of God, all you have is your own assumptions as to why things are happening the way they are. And so you do the best you can with what you have, and you try to appease the gods, and you try to control nature. Yet. This is not the way God has dealt with his people. God has revealed himself in his word. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. This is important because, unfortunately, many Christians still try to operate as though we don't have the Word of God. And so an event happens in your life and you close your eyes and say, oh, to try to figure out what it is that God is saying to you
1: through the events.
2: It's paganism. It's paganism. It's not biblical Christianity. That's paganism. God did not call the Egyptians or the, or, or the Israelites to sit there, close their eyes, and think real hard about what he was trying to say to them through these events. He had his prophet, and his prophet said, have faith, fear not, watch God, shut up. Now, oh, by the way, turn around and let's walk. Because God did that. And he told you beforehand that he was going to deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians and that he was going to wipe them out so that they would know that God is God, so that you will know that God is God, so that you are not tempted to worship and serve another God. And, folks, this is the key. God doesn't want Israel to worship the Egyptian God. God doesn't want Israel to worship Moses. Moses, God doesn't want Israel to worship his staff. God wants Israel to worship God. So he communicates clearly to his people, through his prophets. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. And here's why. And here's how I expect you to respond. And this is why we worship in accordance with what we find in the word of God. God hasn't even called us to figure out on our own how we respond to his deliverance. God even tells us in his word how we're to respond to his deliverance. Here's how you respond to the way that I've delivered you. So God delivers us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he doesn't leave us and say, okay, Jesus has saved you by his blood. Now do the best you can to figure out how you can say thank you to me. No. He tells us what to do. He tells us what to observe. He tells us that we're to give attention to the public reading of his word. He tells us that we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He tells us that we're to pray. He tells us that there's to be preaching He tells us that we're to observe the Lord's table. He tells us these things, and he tells us that we're to do it one day in seven over and over and over and over again so that when we gather, we are responding to God in the way that God has commanded that we respond to him so that we can know we're giving to him exactly what he desires and deserves. have to be innovative and in fact when we attempt to be innovative basically what we're doing is when we attempt to be innovative in worship we're like this husband we're like the husband who says this i know she has told me 97 times that this is what she likes and i know that every time that i do what she has told me 97 times that she likes, that she really likes what she says she likes. However, this is the 98th time. So I'm going to do something that she hasn't told me that she likes, which she's kind of indicated that she doesn't really like at all. But because I'm being innovative, I'm sure she'll be blown away. And, again, man, if you can't say amen, you ought to say out. And then we get offended when we come on the 98th time and do that innovative thing that we kind of know she doesn't really like, but we're tired of doing the thing that she likes. And we come to her, and her response is, oh, and now we're offended. Why? Well, because you're supposed to like what you don't like. This is the church, unfortunately, in worship in many instances. I know that God has told us clearly in his word what worship is. I believe that we can give him something that will blow his mind. We can go above and beyond that which the God of the universe expects in worship. We're going to be innovative. No, we're going to do what he says, the way he says it, because he says it. Because God delivers his people so that they might worship him rightly for his deliverance. Because the next time you hear the hosts of horses, the next time the Egyptians get so close that you can almost see the lights of their eyes. The next time that you are tempted to throw up your hands and to lay down and wait for somebody to put dirt on you. The next time you are tempted to shake your fist at God because he delivered you only to disappoint you now. Remember. There has been a sovereign decree And that nothing is happening by accident Remember This is God's providential plan And he is working out your salvation In accordance with that which will bring him maximum glory Not necessarily that which will bring you maximum comfort And remember If you have questions or doubts about why God does what he does the way he does. You don't find it by closing your eyes, smoking some peyote, and thinking real hard about it. You find it by searching his word. Because he has spoken. He has done so authoritatively. And he has done so completely as it relates to your salvation and mine. There's nothing that befalls you that his word doesn't explain to you. And the next time you wonder whether or not he really loves you, or whether or not he just brought you out here so that he could bury you by the sea, remind yourself that as you see your Egyptians coming toward you God didn't deliver you by putting to death somebody else's firstborn he delivered you with the death of his own firstborn so if you want to know whether or not God really loves you don't look at your own heart Don't look at your own circumstances. Don't look at your own pain, and don't look at your own fears. If you want to know whether God really loves you, you look at the cross. And I double-dog dare you to look at the cross and question God's love. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, I guarantee you, saints, You look at the cross where your deliverance was purchased and you may not have all the answers as to why you're enduring this right now, but what you will have is the answer to this question. Can God deliver? The answer is a resounding yes. Can deliver because he had, has delivered, and he will deliver. This is the assurance that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank you for your mercy. And your kindness and your patience and your long-suffering with us. how we thank you for the countless ways that you have reminded us of your goodness and of your deliverance. The countless ways that you have demonstrated your patience. the countless ways that you have reassured us of your love. Reminded us that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Reminded us that you demonstrated your love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Reminding us that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son so that all the believing ones may not perish, may have Everlasting life. Grant by your grace that we might look to this love as opposed to merely looking to our own circumstances. Father, I lift up those under the sound of my voice who have heard the hoof beats and the rolling wheels of chariots in their lives this week. We've seen the Egyptians so close. It seemed that there was no way out. Grant by your grace that they would be reminded today that you are not a God who delivers partially. And you are not a God who delivers only to disappoint. Remind us all today that your deliverance is about your glory. And grant by your grace that we might hold to this truth, that we might walk in this truth, and that we might be conformed to this truth. This we pray. Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. We have (laughs)
3: come. In Ephesians 6, we read, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, many theologians have said that the Apostle Paul was thinking about Roman armor when he wrote about the armor of God. After all, he was imprisoned in Rome being guarded by Roman soldiers. But he wasn't thinking about Roman armor at all. He was referring to the spiritual armor the prophet Isaiah described, worn by the Messiah. Isaiah 11.5, he is girded in righteousness and faithfulness. Isaiah 49.2, his mouth is like a sharp sword. Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace and salvation who says to Zion your god reigns Isaiah 59:17 he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head so if this is the armor Christ is wearing what does it mean for you to put on the armor of God Romans 13:14 Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you are to imitate Jesus. Commit yourself to serving not the desires of your flesh, but Christ your King. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light that God gives you when we understand the text.
4: It doesn't take millions of years. This is Ken Ham. CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. Evolutionary teaching has indoctrinated us to think it takes millions of years to make a fossil. But it doesn't. It just takes the right conditions. To make a fossil, you need to bury a plant or animal quickly. This keeps it from being eaten or rotting away. And once it's buried, the organism can mineralize to become a fossil. You know, this process doesn't take millions of years. It can happen very quickly. For example, a miner left his hat in a mine, and a few years later, it was hard as a rock. So what happened in the past that quickly buried the creatures we find fossilized today? Well, it's the global flood of Noah's Day.
0: Want to know more about fossils and the flood? Visit our faith-affirming website to learn more about how the global flood of Noah's Day changed the world at AnswersRadio.com.
5: As we continue our study of the isms, the ideologies, or the foundational philosophies that impact the culture in which we live, I want to turn our attention now to hedonism. Again, we have a case that we use a word to describe a movement or philosophy that not everybody in the culture is aware of. I'm sure that there are vast numbers of people in America who have never heard the word hedonism. Hedonism, but I can't conceive of anybody of age in America who has not experienced the impact uh, or the import of hedonism as a life and worldview. Hedonism as a philosophy has this basic principle for its foundation, which is hedonism defines the good or the true in terms of pleasure and pain. That is the sumum bonum, the highest good of man. The ultimate purpose for his being is found in the enjoyment of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. So what the hedonist is searching for constantly and continuously is an increase in pleasure and a decrease in pain. I want to just make a tiny little distinction here. The true hedonist seeks not so much for the maximum of pleasure, as he seeks for the optimum of pleasure, that which will be uh, the uh, most pleasurable, all things being equal. Well, historically, we see the rise of hedonism not as a new thing springing onto the 20th century culture into the vacuum of uh, the absence of the transcendent, which we've discussed. But hedonism has its roots very, very early uh, in the world, and we could trace it to the Garden of Eden if we had to, but in terms of a a formal philosophy, we find it back in the ancient Greek culture in the school of the Cyrenaics. Now, the Cyrenaics were what I would call crass hedonists, crass crude hedonists now you may have never heard of the psionics but you have seen visual images of their philosophy of life manifested many many times through hollywood productions and through tv dramas and so on you you've seen the pictures of the ancient roman orgies where people are just indulging themselves without restraint in reckless abandon in wine, women, and song. Right? I think of Pliny's uh, Satyricon as uh, perhaps the most uh, vivid portrayal of that kind of a lifestyle that Hollywood has ever produced. Or we think of the ancient Bacchanalia.
1: Have you ever
5: heard of the the old uh, Bacchanalia, which was the festival? of the celebration of what God? Do you remember? God Bacchus, who was the God of the vine, the God of grapes, the God of wine. And the Bacchanalia was this wild, orgiastic uh, celebration uh, done uh, in honor of the, uh, the God Bacchus. We also think of the way in which hedonism became not only a philosophy in parts of the ancient world, but actually a religion. Have you heard of the Dionysian style of the orgy? The Dionysian frenzy? Where the god Dionysius, or Dionysius, was worshipped, he was the counterpart to Bacchus, he was worshipped uh, as the one who would give us an ability to break out of the chains that inhibit us in terms of our normal states of consciousness and awareness. I mean, the Greek philosophers understood that there were limits to what we were able to know through empirical perception, through the use of our five senses. And there was a limit to the knowledge that we could reach by speculation on the basis of reason. And so some sought a release prison house of the normal restraints of human knowledge that could come through some kind of intuition or mystical experience. And so uh, there were those who made a religion out of, of worshiping the God that they thought would give them the ability to transcend the normal limits of consciousness. And that was the God Dionysius, who provided the means of drunken stupor, wherein one state of drunkenness the normal inhibitions of our wakeful life are removed. And people believe that they, through uh, uh, the drunken stupor, could make contact with the supernatural world in a mystical experience of getting high, if you will. The experience was not called getting low. It was getting high, breaking through the limits and the structures of normal consciousness. And this was added into all kinds of sexual uh, involvement and even temple prostitution where the prostitutes were there presumably to help a person break down their inhibition so that they could make contact with the gods and experience the feeling the same, which was the release of the soul that was understood really physically or sensuously. Now, As I say, it's the Cyrenaics who adopted this crass form of radical indulgence in drunkenness and and sex and and all of that sort of thing. And oftentimes uh, we think falsely of the radical uh, hedonists as being the Epicureans, but the Epicureans were the next stage. The Epicureans uh, were much more sophisticated Advocates of Hedonism. In fact, today we see, we we will often use the term Epicurean to define what kind of person. A person with exquisite taste. A person who can identify the finest wines, but who is not himself a drunkard. The person who has a gourmet palate and understands the intricacies of the culinary art. We call him an Epicurean. A person who understands the finest clothes and and the finest rugs and that, who appreciates the finer things of life, is often called an Epicurean. But he is also a person who is devoted to his comfort creature, his creature comforts, isn't he? He lives for the enjoyment of a very sophisticated level of pleasure. No. The Epicureans adopted a more moderate or what I call refined variety of hedonism because they learned very early the problem of Cyrenaic hedonism, the problem of all hedonism, the problem of what is called The hedonistic paradox. How many of you have ever heard of the hedonistic paradox? The hedonistic paradox is this. The problem the devotee of hedonism encounters is this. What happens if he fails to achieve the measure of pleasure that he seeks? happens What what, what, what intrudes into his life frustration is frustration painful or pleasant it's painful so if you don't get the pleasure you're seeking you experience frustration and there's a sense in which the more that you seek the pleasure and more you fail to achieve it the more pain that intrudes into your life because of your frustration what happens if you achieve it If you achieve it for too long, you become sated, you become bored. And boredom, which is the counterpart of frustration, is also painful to the pleasure seeker. And so the hedonistic par- paradox was if you achieve what you want, you lose. If you don't achieve, What you're searching for, you lose. And also, the Epicureans understood the price tag for pleasure. They understood that if you overindulge, like we have a a sign down in this dining room, those who overindulge, what? Bulge, you know, second on the lips, lifetime on the hips. That's part of the hedonistic paradox. The momentary enjoyment of pleasure can have consequences that are painful. The Epicureans understood that, and they said if you, if you indulge in too much wine, then the end result would not be this exquisite enjoyment of fine-tasting wine, but it would be the awful hangover of the next day. If you overindulge in sexual activities, you're increasing your odds for future misery, in terms of venereal disease or whatever, and, and so on. And so they try to create a more balanced enjoyment of pleasure and pain. Just a little bit of adultery. Yeah. Just, just a little bit. Just enough to spice up, right, to keep uh, uh, the excitement uh, flowing uh, in the human heart. Now, uh, in addition, the Epicureans were seeking for the same thing that the Stoics were seeking for, but they were seeking it in a completely different manner. The ultimate goal of Epicurean philosophy was the achievement of what was called philosophical ataraxia. Philosophical ataraxia. How many have ever heard of that word? Has anybody in this room ever heard that word? In I know you've heard it before. Some of you who are doctor's wives perhaps should have heard of it. Ataraxia today, the only time you hear this word in our culture today is it's a brand name for a tranquilizer. Okay? And uh, the quest for philosophical ataraxia among the ancient Epicureans and the Stoics was simply the quest for peace of mind. The search for peace of mind. Now, is something unique to the Epicurean? Doesn't everybody want peace of mind? Sure. The Stoics felt that the only way to, to find peace of mind was by adopting a philosophy of what they called imperturbability. Don't let anything get to you. You, know, you keep, adopt a Stoical attitude to all things. Don't get emotionally involved. Don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes down. But I mean, maintain a, an emotional state of equilibrium where nothing phases you. You, don't, you, know, you adopt a detached type of feeling towards things over which you have no control. In fact, it was based on a very deterministic understanding of the world that all things happen by fixed mechanical causes, according to the Stoics, and we can't change things. K sera, sera was originally the song of the Stoics. Right? And they said, the only thing that I have control over in my life is not what happens to me. If I'm going to get hit by a car this afternoon, I can't help that. The only thing I really have control over is how I react to it inwardly. So the Stoics sought to master the ability of being cool, not letting anything shake you up inwardly. That was their approach. The Epicureans approached it the other way, through an active pursuit of, they believed that you could change the state of affairs and events that affect you in your life and that happens primarily through an active pursuit of pleasure and an active avoidance in pain very few people in our culture who will call themselves hedonists who will come right out and say that's my philosophy of life i live for pleasure and for the avoidance of pain you have might attach his name to a philosophy like that, but most of us, even in a secular environment, still have negative value judgments about that kind of view of reality. Yet at the same time, we all recognize that there is a little bit of the hedonist in all of us. I mean, no, I mean, I, I mean, even the masochist is a hedonist. He's a reverse hedonist. He seeks to maximize pain, but not so that he can avoid pleasure, but what? So he can gain it. He just has a sort of a short circuit in terms of pain and pleasure, but he's still seeking pleasure. Who does not want to have experiences that are pleasant? Who really wants to enjoy pain? I sure don't. I want pleasure. I want to avoid pain, and I want comfort. I want to be able to have a full stomach at the end of the night. I not want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. Is there anybody who's different from that? There's a sense in which what hedonism does is capitalizes on a certain built-in given to human nature, something which is universal. I mean, we are creatures of, uh, of uh, sensation. We have feelings. We can experience pain, and we don't like it. We can experience pleasure, and we do like it. But what the hedonist does is he puts that suffix on the end, I-S-M, and turns it into a philosophy of ultimates, an ultimate standpoint of value, so that truth and goodness are determined in the final analysis by this calculus of pain and pleasure. Christianity tells us going in that if we embrace certain values... There will be pain in it. Christ was not a hedonist when he went up to Jerusalem. He had a duty to perform which was good and which was true, but which was painful. The hedonists would declare Christ a fool, voluntarily accepting that kind of pain unnecessarily hedonism is hardly altruistic. And yet Christianity calls us not to seek suffering, not to seek pain, or to flee from that which is pleasant. And there's no sin in enjoying the pleasant and enjoying the freedom from pain. But there are times when the Christian must choose the road and inevitably leads. And so we do not establish hedonism as the sumum bonum, of the highest good. We believe that the highest good will ultimately bring us maximum pleasure and a minimum of pain. Because from a Christian perspective, the maximal location of pain is in the pit of hell, the optimum abode of pleasure. It's in the kingdom of God. But pleasure is defined differently from what it is in hedonism. Hedonism tends to see that pleasure strictly in sensuous, sensual, feeling levels, physical, quantified uh, dimensions. Now, let's look for a moment at modern forms of hedonism. We have seen in our own generation extreme forms of escapism
6: manifested
5: in our own contemporary culture it seems to be a strong quest not for or pursuit of happiness but the pursuit of happiness has been translated by the new generation into the pursuit of euphoria the happiness has been translated almost exclusively into the category of feeling I'm sure you've already noticed this, but this sometimes, you know, like when you hear a new word, this is not a new word. But when you hear a new word, you know, for the first time, suddenly you hear it five times that week is become aware of it. The, what I'd like you to do is pay attention when you see this word or hear this word in your culture. See how the word feeling functions in your culture. This term, this concept is so pervasive in our society that standard traditional forms of language, standard traditional categorical propositions and prefatory statements about theoretical thought have changed to accommodate this word. What I'm saying is a lot of big words here, very simply is I read students' papers all the time. It me nuts. I, I, I get where my hand at uh, just using the red pencil when they keep saying when they're presenting a case in the paper, I feel that we should do this. I feel that Descartes is wrong, or I feel that Kant has made a mistake here. you see that in your sentence? I feel, I feel, and I circle it all. I say, "What do you feel that Descartes made a mistake? Don't tell me you feel that Descartes made a mistake. What you mean is you think that Descartes makes a mistake. You're thinking of a cognitive process here. It's not a feeling. It's thinking. And I want to see the substance of your thought on your paper. I don't want to have you bleeding all over the paper in terms of your feelings. The exploration of feelings is a very appropriate science for the physician or even for the psychologist. When somebody comes in to me for counseling, I know that feelings are important enough that I don't say to that husband, what do you think of your wife? I'm asking the feeling questions because I know they're the loaded ones. That's where the emotion is. And I say, how do you feel about when she does this or that? How do you feel when he does that or that? I'm trying to get out the feelings because I don't want to deny for a moment that feelings are a very, very vital part of what it means to be human, but they're not the same thing as thinking. But the feeling has become so exaggerated in our culture that even in our speech patterns, we're talking about feeling ideas, feeling thoughts instead of thinking thoughts and thinking ideas. We've seen the explosion of a relatively new science, the science of psychology, in terms of its public involvement, we're a nation preoccupied with the analysis of our moods, which is, again, a focus on our
1: feelings.
5: Other things, of course, are much more obvious. We see the explosion of the use of artificial forms to induce euphoria, drugs, this is the drug culture today. Think of the cocaine industry in this nation, the marijuana industry, or the rapidly rising rate of teenage alcoholism, which was featured in local television programs recently called chemical. I remember in 1963, I was working at St. Francis Hospital in Pittsburgh, Cadillac limousine drove up in front of that hospital, and the girl was escorted out of that uh, Cadillac and brought into the psychiatric ward of the hospital and admitted to the alcoholic ward. She was 15 years old. And I remember the buzz that went through the hospital at that time. It was scandalous that there was such a thing. as a 15-year-old alcoholic in 1963. Today, there are literally millions of hardcore teenage alcoholics in our culture because of the impact of a philosophy of radical and crass hedonism. That life is to be lived to escape pain and, the, and responsibility. Anything that's uncomfortable. Anything that's unpleasing is I was reading, again, in in, uh, a woman who was teaching literature saying that the school board demands that they choose books that the teenagers will enjoy while they're teaching them literature. Nobody's saying that they have to enjoy study of mathematics. But they must enjoy the books that are selected, and so instead of Teaching children great literature Literature courses Become hours of Entertainment So the kids can feel good I mean it's, it's Controlling the environment Just in a couple minutes I have left let me just point out Some things Hedonism by saying that the Avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure Is a good is making a Value judgment and it produces At the same time a system of Ethics which in turn produces a behavioral pattern of morality. What are some of the popular axioms or maxims of current-day hedonism? You've heard this one a jillion times. If it feels good, it what? It is good. If it feels good, it is good. Their goodness, the good, is determined by what? Feeling. the music, look at the novel, listen. I mean, even you know, not too long ago, we saw the uh, introduction to the world of music of a Christian girl who went to the very top of the charts with the song that was the song of the year in America a couple of years ago. they the daughter of Pat Boone. Ebby Boone sings, you light up my life which was supposed to symbolize the power of Christ to illumine and enlighten a person living in darkness. Remember the lyrics? How can it be wrong if, if it feels so good? It's supposed to be a Christian song. How can it be wrong if it feels so good? That is the hedonist ethic not the Christian ethic. Uh, Again, I only have seconds left, and so I will just uh, give a quote that I heard last week from Helen Gurley Brown to indicate how much society has changed with respect to its values vis-a-vis hedonism. She has given to us a new definition of promiscuity. When I was in high school, the word promiscuity meant having sexual relationships with more than one person outside of marriage. That was the given definition of promiscuity. The new definition by Helen Gurley Brown of promiscuity is having sexual relationships with more than one person in the same day. In the same day. That's the new definition of promiscuity. Again, the whole sex ethic, the whole sexual revolution that the nation has gone through does not happen in a vacuum. There are cultural and philosophical and ethical reasons for these changes to take place. And when the transcendent is removed and then the ultimate basis of truth and goodness is destroyed, what do you look?
4: Fossils. Rapidly buried. This is Ken Ham whose ministry has produced Answers Bible curriculum for church and homeschool. Many people think it took millions of years for us to get the billions of fossils we have today. But the fossil record shows evidence of having been laid down very quickly. Jellyfish don't have any hard parts, so they decay within hours. And yes, we have perfectly preserved jellyfish fossils. At the Creation Museum, we have a fossil of a fish buried so fast that it didn't finish swallowing. Fossils found all around the world show evidence of rapid burial. The Bible provides explanation. The global flood of Noah's day would have rapidly buried creatures all over the world. The Bible's history, it explains what we see in the fossil record.
0: Learn more about the fossil record when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged to see how the evidence confirms the Bible at AnswersRadio.com.
7: I have a health condition that causes chronic pain. A friend suggested something called reflexology and sent me a link. It sounds similar to New Age practices and is based on ancient Chinese belief of qi, which involves energy in the body. With that history being said, to what extent do we steer clear of things that seem or appear New Age? I want to have good biblical boundaries, but also am open to practices like massage, which seem to be in the neutral zone. Am I wrong to want to avoid this suggestion? Okay, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. My best friend uh, has a chronic illness and is also an ex newager and I'm drawing from some of her experience when I say this, but you are perfectly within your right to say no to this, especially if it's not in line with your conscience before God. So first, I want to say that there's there's just no measurable studies on this sort of stuff. A lot of it is pseudoscience or placebo just being straight up with you i did a video on reincarnation that kind of goes into this a little bit more in depth about half-life regression therapy but the thing is is that people go in expecting results so just like a Todd white healing crusade it's sort of something you're open and ready for right like whether you get it or not which makes it hard to tell if it actually worked or not. So I would say that it's fair to say that people who don't want to rely on medicine might consider this an option, but it's demonstrable that it doesn't always work and people can get worse. But let me submit another perspective because I am, after all, an ex newager and my past self would disagree with myself now. Let's turn this on its head and say I'm totally wrong. Let's just say that it did help, and it actually worked. This is where I would say there's an actual appeal to occult practices. Like, this is exactly why people get into this stuff. People are going to be attracted to occult stuff specifically because it works. Occult temptations always start working. Remember, occult doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just simply means hidden or secret. There are short-term benefits to dabbling in occult stuff which is why we like it so much, unfortunately. It gives us this, like, forbidden power. And there's nothing wrong with massage or things like that uh, that are physical and not spiritual, right, Um, to the extent that you avoid them has everything to do with what God has forbidden in this area. Not because he wants you to be miserable, but because there's an occult link to it that will leave a spiritual stain. Also, just another perspective on this, your denial could also be an opportunity to make them curious as to why you would refuse the offer. I think if done with love and tact, this could be a great opportunity to share the gospel with them.
4: slow gradual processes This is Ken Ham, a missionary with a passion for sharing God's word with the world. According to secular geologists, the layers of coal we find around the world were laid down slowly over millions of years. But there are big problems with this idea. For example, here in Kentucky, there are upright trees that go through many layers of coal. But if this coal was formed over millions of years, how could a tree remain upright and intact over those millions of years? It couldn't. Layers of coal don't provide evidence of slow processes. A much better explanation is that they were formed in a global catastrophe, the global flood of Noah's day. When we start with the Bible, what we see in the world makes sense of what God's word says.
0: Want to know more about the global flood of Noah's day? Visit our Bible-upholding website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com.
8: How do you know there's an afterlife? How do you know the Bible's the Word of God? Is there any way to know for sure?
6: I believe faith is um, the number one thing that's that's important about it.
8: Let me play skeptic. If I said to you, I don't want to have blind faith. I I don't want to have faith. I want something concrete. Is there anything concrete we can give somebody who wants to hang their intellectual hat on? Let me give you an example. You ever study Bible prophecy?
6: Uh, Not really.
8: As you know, the book of Ezekiel, speaks of the nations that will come down and attack Israel in the last days. And the prophet actually named the nations, and we can see that happening on the news. The fact that God knows the future, and he's put his future in his word, is evidence that the Bible is the word of God, and we can trust its promises. And it's promises for everlasting life. Your name is sincere, is that right? Yes. Do you believe there's an afterlife?
6: I think so, yeah. I, like, I believe in like reincarnation and stuff. You believe in God? Yes. You think hell exists? Uh, yes. Where are you
8: going when you die? I don't really know. It's up to God, really. Shouldn't you find out? Yeah. Could you be going to hell?
6: No, I don't believe so. Are
8: you sure about that? I hope so. Are you a good person? Yes, I am a good person. The Bible says, Who shall ascend the hell of the Lord? Speaking the presence of God, it says, He that has clean hands and a pure heart. Is your heart pure?
6: I, I think it's pure.
8: You think you're a good person?
6: I like to say I am.
8: Yeah, let me see if I can change your mind. Jesus said there's none good but God. Who's lying, you or Jesus? Oh, the story of the rich young ruler. There's none good. And let me show you it's God's standard of goodness. It means moral perfection and thought, word, and deed. So let's see if you're a good person. How many lies have you told in your life?
6: Definitely a few.
8: Stolen anything?
5: I have. So you're a lying thief? Uh, I guess so.
8: You still think you're a good person? Probably not. You <laughs> know, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to bring the knowledge of sin. Most people think, ah, uh, God gave us Ten Commandments as a standard to live by. No, it's a standard we don't live by. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he showed us God's standard. The Bible says of the Messiah he would magnify the law, it's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and make it honorable. Let me show you what he did. He said, you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. And then he said, but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Did you know that? Uh, I do. Have you looked to us last?
5: Uh, I say I have.
8: Many times? Many times. Have you ever used God's name in vain?
6: I believe so. Do you love your mum? 100%. Did
8: you ever use her name as a cuss word? Never. Never, because you respect her. 100%. You don't respect the God that gave you a mother. He took his holy name and used her in a place of a filth word to express disgust. Godly Jews won't write God's name down because it's so holy and you've used it in blasphemy. Very serious. So here's the summation sincere. This is for you to judge yourself for judgment day. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart. And you're self righteous, which is a sin in God's eyes, and saying you're a good person. When it's obvious you're not, you're like the rest of us. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four on Judgment Day, will you be innocent or guilty? I'll be guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell. Yeah. What do you think you have to do to avoid the
6: damnation of hell? Uh, do my heart to God and not really do all that stuff I did from the past. Kind of. Have you ever heard the gospel? I don't, I don't really know.
8: So the law is bringing to you a knowledge of sin so you can see how serious sin is in God's eyes. Ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death?
6: I think I have, but I think I need to be reminded about that.
8: It's a very famous verse, Romans 6:23, and the saying God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge who looks at a criminal who's committed murder, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person, judge. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you've earned. And Jonathan's sin is so serious to our holy God, he's given you the death sentence. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin, and you've earned your wages. So on Judgment Day, if God judges you by those Ten Commandments, will he be innocent or guilty?
6: Most likely guilty.
8: Absolutely guilty. Heaven or hell?
4: Since I'm guilty, most likely hell.
8: And the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So can you see that you're in big trouble? Yes, sir. So what can you do to get right with God?
5: I confess that Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross for our
6: sins and um, resurrected three days later.
8: The moment you're under God's wrath, heading for hell, how can the death of Jesus on the cross help you 2,000
6: years later? He died for our sins. What does that mean? For us to have eternal life with him, or a chance at eternal life with him. A chance?
8: Let me share the gospel with you, and it'll be a relief to you. Jonathan, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law... Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. He was saying paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. Even though you're guilty, you say, have got a lot of fines here, but you can leave because someone's paid them. And it's legal. Well, God can take the death sentence off you. He can legally let you live forever, all because of what Jesus did on the cross for his death and resurrection. And all you have to do, according to the Bible, to find everlasting life repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Do you know what repentance is?
6: Put your sins away, right?
8: Yeah, you turn from sin. You can't say I'm a Christian, but you lie and fornicate and blaspheme and lock a porn. That's just deceiving yourself, playing the hypocrite. So you've got to be genuine. You've got to be sincere. And then you trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. You don't just believe in a parachute. You put your faith into it. So the second you repent and trust in Jesus, God will wash you clean of your sins, grant you everlasting life as a free gift, and he'll give you your own personal miracle suddenly want to please the God that gave you life more than anything. The Bible puts it this way. God says, I'll write my law upon your heart and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, he'll make you want to do the things that please him, and that's your own personal miracle. Is this making sense? Yes. You're going to think about what we talked about today?
6: Yeah. I if
8: you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute?
6: So we have safety. Yeah, you don't
8: want to die. And your motivation is fear. And that fear is your friend, not your enemy, because it's making you put on a parachute. Jonathan, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. I've tried to make you scared, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend, not your enemy, because it'll make you serious with God and drive you to the foot of the cross where you'll find everlasting life. Just making sense? Yes, sir. You are going to think about what we talked about?
5: 100%.
8: Have you ever truly repented the knowledge of how serious sin is because today that law has brought the knowledge of sin that stirred your conscience my suspicion is that in the past you've been a little flippant about sin and haven't found a place of genuine sorrow and true repentance and that's been your problem would that be right i'll say so are you sorry for your sins now 100 you're ready to repent and trust in jesus with all your heart and not your goodness yes sir can i pray with you yes Father, I pray for Jonathan. Thank you for his open heart today and the fact that he's listened and that his conscience was tender. I pray this day he'll find a place of true contrition, sorrow for sin, and genuine repentance, be born again, and pass from death to life, all because of your wonderful mercy and your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You tearing up? Yeah, a little bit. You know what that is? contrition do you know what contrition is uh, we, yeah contrition is a genuine sorrow for your sins and the Bible says a contrite heart God will not despise so every tear is precious in God's eyes because it shows the genuineness of your faith in him and your desire to get life with him do you have a Bible at
7: home
6: I have an Apple my phone. Uh, a physical Bible
8: no I'm going to give you a gospel of John which is the fourth book in the New Testament book I've written called Volatile, which names the nations God said would attack Israel and it'll boost your faith in the word of God. And I'm going to give you a little book called Save Yourself Some Pain, Principles of Christian Growth. It's the Gospel of John. It's like a bundle of money, but it's more precious than all the money in the world. Volatile, the nations, the, the Bible says, will attack Israel in the latter days. So when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Starting today. serious? Yes. So you're giving up the battle and you're saying, God, I need your mercy. Are you sorry for your sins?
6: Yeah, I'm very sorry for my sins.
8: And I pray with you? Yes. Father, I pray for Sincere that this day he'll find a place of true sorrow for sin and genuine repentance, and he'll catch a glimpse of your holiness and what you did on the cross, that he might be saved from wrath. And this day, as he repents and trusts in you, may he be born again with a new heart and new desires and find peace with you and the gift of everlasting life, all because of your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray.
6: Amen. Dear God, uh, I'm sorry for all the sins I did, and I want to repent all my sins and give my heart to you, because I I love you, I know you're going to watch over me, because you keep giving me all these chances, and I, I've been taking it for granted. So I want to start today of uh, giving my heart to you and repent, because uh, I want to go to heaven, and also... I want you to um, watch over me and keep on watching over me.
8: Can I give you a book that I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible? Yes.
6: You. you made my day. made me really think about life and God.
8: Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks. Available at livingwaters.com.
0: And now, the reading of God's Word. This is from WWTT, and, and we understand the text. And this is the reading of Genesis 1 to 3. The
4: Book of Genesis.
3: Chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, And every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis chapter 2 Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts and on the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on it he rested from all his work which God had created in making it These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And so the man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky— And he brought each to the man to see what he would call it, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become One flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, And he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he send forth his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life.
4: Massive fossil graveyards. This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on the authority of God's word from the very first verse. Is the fossil record evidence for millions of years? If you think yes, consider this. Around the world, we find fossil graveyards. Now, these are massive deposits of billions of fossils buried together. For example, in one layer of the Grand Canyon, there are over 10,000 square miles of squid-like fossils. This means that billions of these creatures were buried all at once. And chalk beds that stretch from the Middle East across Europe into North America contain fossils of trillions of tiny marine creatures. What could possibly bury billions of creatures at once? Well, only the flood of Noah's Day. Fossils are the result of creatures being buried quickly.
0: Discover more about the global flood when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You can also plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com.
1: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That H B E T O L D radio.com oc dot truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradio show at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradio show at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Cantroa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-S dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
0: That's all we got for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening and say bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.